this. It's supposed to count down. Did it count down? It did. Yeah, we're good. I think we're good. Bart de Monk. Bart the Monk. Monkey, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> call him sir. I like to call him sir. And I like to call him friend. He's becoming my friend. He is the uh, chief industry officer at Project 44. Is that correct? I got that it, right. It is correct. You can call me Better Call Bart. You know, any of those. I go by all of those. Better call Bart. <laughs> got were you a Simpsons fan, Bart? Was that around when you were young? Did you did you fall into those kind of jokes uh, when you were a kid? Unfortunately, it wasn't, right? And so when people mm. ask what's your name, I say Bart like Bart Simpson, right? And people think they that I hate that. But you gotta imagine Bart is a very common name in Belgium where I'm from. Mm. But anywhere else in the world, they didn't know that name, Bart, which obviously comes from Bartholomew. And most people in Belgium have some kind of a Christian Catholic name. It's a Saint, Saint Bartholomew, right? Exactly. So when I was younger and I would go and travel with my parents around the world and they said, what's your name? And they say, Bart. And they always look at me like, what kind of name is that? The closest they came was in the U.S. when they called me Bert because they had Bert and Ernie. But Bert and Bart, not the same. So when the Simpsons came around, it was incredible. I could travel all over the world. And when I said Bart, they're like, ah, Bart Simpson. Ah, uh, like Bart Simpson. Okay, now you became fit. Not the saint, but Bart Simpson. Exactly. It's like when I say, do you know the very famous Belgian people, right? We, we have some saints that are from Belgium. You know, Father Damien in the island of Molokai who worked with the leopards. So we have... Otto Sachs, who invented the saxophone, but unfortunately, the only person people know around the world is Belgian, is Jean Claude Van Damme. Jean Claude Van Damme. Well, I mean, come on, dude. He was pretty cool in his time. He was, yeah, 30 years ago. Um, you, yeah. should, you should hang it up. <laughs> yeah, it, was a while, it was a while ago, but uh, it's, hard, and it's hard for people to believe because some people don't, they don't. Uh, they don't hold up. And like old Jean Claude Van Damme movies don't, don't really hold up. I mean, they don't after time. You know what I mean? Some do. It doesn't. Right. Um, I, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> that's awesome, though. So what does uh, what does one do as the chief in industry officer? At, first of all, let's let's get into Project 44. We're not we're not on a you know, I, I come from 35 years in logistics. Right. And and I've made this kind of jump into the logistics of recycling, et cetera. Right. Trying to use my my knowledge of recycling, et cetera, to bring me into uh, to to help out this industry because recycling and sustainability, et cetera. We're in some of the messes because of bad supply chains and supply chains are going to help us out of these messes, right? Out of, out of many things. Supply mm -hmm. chain and logistics is a key, key um, skill and knowledge to have if you're running a company and trying to solve issues, right? It absolutely is. But what I'm getting to is my current audience is not as logistics minded as they used to be. It's about 60% still in the logistics world, but there's, pl there's plenty of people out there going, who the heck is Project 44? Who is P44? Can you give us the, the elevator pitch? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short, right? So our mission is to be the connective tissue in supply chain. We're really a platform that connect to all the different players in that ecosystem. Supply chain, as the word kind of makes it itself, it is by nature very connected. But we aren't always very connected from a technology perspective. And yes, in the past, we used spreadsheets and EDI, so we're that API first connectivity platform. And really the goal is 
to collect all that data from all the different participants, to work together and collaborate around data and make supply chains more efficient for all. That's kind of what we do. Visibility is part of that in providing transparency in the supply chain, transparency around kind of your inventory in motion, but also to what we'll probably talk about during this session is around sustainability and emissions and yeah. specifically in transportation or what we call scope three emissions. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the big ones and those are, uh, well, it's the big one in, in the logistics industry, especially in the intermediaries, right? Industry as well, um, but also company. I mean, for every company, right? Every company that does business eventually ships something. Uh, even electric companies do. I mean, I know they're shipping electricity and energy via wire, but they're also moving equipment, et cetera, and stuff like that. So scope three is, is all over the place, no matter really what you're doing. So it is incredibly, incredibly important. Thank you for that uh, that that quick elevator pitch. Is Project 44, does that not come from, I believe Jet told me that it is, it really comes from Project 66 or, or Route 66 in Chicago, right? It's the portion yeah, so of the the history is aligned with Chicago. Obviously, uh, Jet was living in Chicago at the time when he started the company, headquartered still in Chicago in a merchandise mart. So the history is everyone knows Route 66, which started in Chicago, which was great 20s and 30s. But then with obviously huge increase in number of automobiles and then Eisenhower saw the, the modern highway system in Germany. And so in the early 50s, he said, we got to modernize our highway system. We need to create this super highway which was called Project 44, and the first highway was Highway 44. And so Jet's vision when he started the company was to do similar, but then for technology to create that super highway of connectivity and data for the logistics industry, and hence the name Project 44. Awesome, awesome. So how did you get involved with it, Bart? Were you uh, just a little boy running around the uh, tulip fields? Um <laughs> That's the hold on, but I'll, I'll take in, it. I'll take in it. The, in the touch. Oh, yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'll give you. That's uh, staying uh, close. Uh, I was sure. really close on that one, though. You got to yeah. admit, I was pretty yeah. darn close. Yo, it's actually very close. Like my parents live less than 15 minutes away from the border with Holland. And, you know, Belgium, it is only as big. I live in the DFW Metroplex. And I think just the Metroplex by itself is larger than the whole of the country in Belgium. But yeah. um, I started my career similar to you, mainly been in supply chain logistics all my life, but really started in the 90s uh, in logistics, worked for um, G Capital. They started uh, a um, 3PL, an asset-based logistics companies to support transportation services for all the GE businesses. They did that in uh, joint venture with Penske Logistics. So we called it Penske Logistics Europe because they had the brand. It was part of the team that started it, started running operations as well. That's kind of how... Uh, I really kind of learned all the ins and outs of logistics, started implementing technologies and worked for technology companies, spent 10 years with PepsiCo on the shipper side. And then I spent eight years on the research gar uh, side with, uh, with Gartner, the research firm. And that's when I got introduced with a lot of these vendors. Some of them I knew from before, right? The, the I2s that became Blue Yonders or Manhattan Associates because I'd been working with them at those different companies. But then a lot of the new technologies. And so I started working with uh, several of the visibility vendors, pretty much all the big ones, uh, starting 2015, 2016, when they started coming around. Um, and so I started working with Project 44. And one of the things I really saw the last few years was 
you know, logistics wasn't always as cool as it is today, right? Back in the 90s, right. people said, Bart, you, you got a master's degree. What are you going to do in logistics? Why? Yeah. It's almost like, why are you wasting your life away in logistics? You're smarter than the entire industry combined. Why are you, why are you doing <laughs> Yeah. And so, but I loved it. And then when I found logistics in combination with technology, I'm like, this is, this is it, right? And yeah. so it took almost 30 years for other people to, to share that kind of mindset. And, and when I saw all of that happening... I said, you know what, it's it's great to be an advisory gardener, but I don't want to be on the sidelines anymore. I want to get back into it. And having had the ability to work on 3PL asset-based side, the shipper side, and the tech side, I want to go back to the tech side. I thought that's where I want to kind of get back into it and, and really, from what I've seen, really drive and help companies create value. Uh, and I thought visibility was kind of that area that had so much opportunity based on that data to create better supply chains. And for me, Project 44 was the leader in that in that particular category. I like the culture of the company. I like the people. Uh, and so I started. It's just celebrated last year, uh, a year at Project 44. Uh, nice. I'm having more fun than probably if I've ever had in any job. Uh, so, yeah, it gives me a lot of energy. And, and just like you, I'm passionate about things like collaboration, passionate about sustainability. Yeah. And, you know, it gives Project 44, just like you have your show, it gives us a platform to be able to create um, leadership, thought leadership around the topic, but also to educate people and have a voice because a lot of it always starts with having people understand what the issue is and how to solve it. Yeah, ab absolutely. Because, you know, we, I think people learn to, to your points about logistics and what you saw early on and the values of it and the importance of logistics and what is there and kind of this, um, more like a, a, a renaissance type of, of thought process towards it rather than just the old, well, what are you talking about? All you're doing is moving stuff around. It's not that big of a deal, right? It's right. It's pretty easy. It's pretty, okay. Once the wheel became round, what else do you need? Right. Um, and, and we saw a bit of that advancement during the pandemic and we all celebrated a lot about the, uh, the awakening of everybody else to viewing what the importance of logistics is. Right. But I don't think that, in my opinion, that people really understood fully. It advanced really the awareness of logistics and the importance thereof, but it advanced in a way like, well, I can't get toilet paper or I can't get peanut butter. I can't. And it is so much more than that. It is the connectivity. Like you said, it's the connectivity. It's the tissue, the ligaments, whatever you want to call it. It's the, it's the veins and the pumping of the blood of the entire world and all of our societies and connecting those societies, right? It's, it's, it's equalizing that that uh, quality of life in, in countries that are developing with those that are developed and enhancing that trade so that the haves and the have nots become much more equal, not dumbing everybody down, but raising everybody back up uh, in a manner that, that hopefully someday will prevent stupid things like some of the geopolitical dangers we're, we're weaving through right now, right? I mean, you, you can solve that through logistics to a certain point, can you not? You, you can. You're absolutely right. Right. Quality of life. It's one of those things we see. Um, we saw it here, here in Texas when we had that terrible winter storm two years ago. Yeah. yeah and we're yeah. so used to saying, oh, we open the tap and water comes out or we we push a button and electricity comes on. Right. Which, by the way, uh, a lot of countries in the world still don't have that or, or lots of people like in Africa don't have access to fresh let me, water. Let me, let me just interrupt you there real quick just to, because I got a point that, that, that I got a story that I'll tell you. My COO that I, that I have with, with me at OPT USA, right? He moved from South Africa 
in um, in October, right here to Chattanooga to to help us to help me start the company here. He is so it, six hours a day. You don't have any power in South Africa. Mm-hmm. This is supposedly not a third world country, right? <laughs> it's a, it's a, was about to be one of the powerhouse economic powers in, in <clears throat> Africa, right? Now, six hours a day, no electricity at all. Yeah. I mean, it's not during the middle of the day. I mean, it's not at night either. It's like middle of the day type of stuff. Like you can't. Yeah, when you're used to it, like we are, and then all of a sudden it gets cut off, you understand. That's what logistics is, right? Logistics always, when things get there on time and you order your Amazon thing and it shows up, but all of a sudden when it doesn't show up, uh, especially when all that inventory, you got to imagine, right? We got these these super container vessels today that have over 24,000 TEUs, right? Uh, So these are 24,000 20 foot equivalent containers. You imagine how much product is in a single container. You can e- easily imagine that if those are individual packages or products that could potentially impact hundreds of millions of consumers, just one sure. ship, let alone yeah, dozens of ships that are sitting somewhere at sea or the ports closed or there's backup. Yeah. So all of a sudden these issues became so huge. But you're also right that logistics is something that connects us all. Um, And that's something I was just in Geneva a few weeks ago at the World Economic Forum talking about, you know, things like visibility and sustainability and data and collaboration. But we also have to look at it. I think we have this uh, responsibility as communities to say, yeah, we're in the U.S., the most technologically advanced country in the world, Um, one of the richest, highest GDP, all of that. But there's a lot of countries that don't have that, right? So you have to look at it in the broader community, not just within your immediate supply chain, but you might be buying something that goes into one of your products somewhere in a shop somewhere in Thailand. So how do you empower these people also with the ability to execute logistics, to be part of this whole community? And I think that's where technology can play a big role. Technology that becomes consumable, meaning it becomes available for everyone, but also you have to look at in the perspective of communities. And I think governments play a huge role in that. And I'm seeing a lot more, um, you know, governments all have that, like a minister of digital commerce or something like that, yeah. that are helping their countries, even the smallest countries in the world, to get to a level of technology enablement that brings us all more on a level playing field. Because without it, it's not going to work, right? If we have all the technology, but we're buying overseas from a country that doesn't have any technology to communicate how efficient is that? It isn't. It isn't. Bart, Bart so have, have you seen in your in your efforts and in your career, have you seen the uh, uh, a, a broader or more wide acceptance of sharing um, data, whether it be specific or, or you know, anonymous and, and aggregated? Or is that still a yeah. difficulty and you have to convince people that it's there? Because you guys have a tremendous service, but I always wonder. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I was with Freightways, people would always ask, how are you getting this stuff? And we would always say, well, we really don't care who did it. We just care that it happened. Right. And yeah. that's some of the issues that were there. Um, but how does your service differ? And how, what, what is your experience with, with that people sharing those data? Yeah, there, there's two aspects of it, right? Getting the data was always difficult. One, in the technological connection to get to the data and pull it in somehow. Uh, a lot of data used to be on-premise or it used to be somewhere in a spreadsheet. You didn't used mm-hmm. to be accessible to the outside world. Obviously, the last even 10 years with the whole IoT industrial revolution, so to speak, we've gone 
like from a little bit of available information to pool to these huge pools of data that are available and who have the technology to get access to it. But the second part is exactly what you were alluding to is that mm -hmm. a lot of companies still have that mindset of, I don't want to share my data, right? Yeah. And, and I think, and even when I was at Garden, we had this whole thing with the data and analytics team that says companies need to change their mindset of thinking, I just want to keep the data to saying, if we share the data, we're all going to benefit. And we, we've seen examples of that consortia. Uh, Airbus, for example, had a consortia where all these airlines that are competitors to each other all pulled their data together around all the Airbus maintenance information. And what they saw in the end is like they were all benefiting from sharing the data. But yeah. it's a mindset. I think as people get access to the data, they see the value that comes out of that shared data, they are more willing to share. And how do you in, uh, entice people to do it? Is give them access to the data and give them both on the care and the shipper side, give them dashboards that help them run their businesses better. And they understand that I only have a little piece of nugget of the data that's my own, but if I get more of the network data, I get so much more visibility that not only benefits me, but it also helps me at the same time to collaborate better with all these other partners in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and other vendors that may not be in the exact same vertical as yourself, right? I mean, that yep. that is a huge, huge part of it. When you're talking about logistics and supply chain, if you talk just trucks, you're missing 90% of what's going on, right? <laughs> just like any other industry, right? Yep. Um, do you find it easier or is it is it because it, it's easy to imagine as someone outside of it, and I've been through all this, so I have I have a lot of these answers, but I'm interested in what your take is as well. Is it easier to convince the smaller guy that their their boat rises with that tide as opposed to like 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 a twenty four thousand TEU uh, Regina Marisk or something like that, that that you know a big dog out there that says, well, you know, I've got such a huge market uh, share, I don't, I really don't need to know what everybody else is going on, which is totally wrong thinking, man. That's not even yeah. close. To yeah. Uh, well, I would say I would I would dumb it down to the fact that the bigger you are, the more complex you are, and the more access you need to data. The smaller yeah. you are, the harder it is to compete. But again, that technology and access to data allows you to play at the same level playing field as someone that's a lot bigger. So it's yeah. complexity versus capability. And I think that's where technology in a lot of cases is kind of leveling the playing field. Imagine, you know, look at things like telematics. 20, 30 yeah. years ago, telematics were only part of the fleets with the most money because these things were so expensive. Then the whole ELD mandate came. And all of a sudden now you have telematics that are available for 10 bucks a month and everyone has them. So if I'm a trucker that only has one truck, I can have a free TMS. I have a very low cost telematics. So I can provide my customers with the same technology capabilities as the largest carriers have. So, yeah. and that's, I think the community part aspect of it. Technology used to be a differentiator in the fact that only the big companies could afford technology. And I think with cloud solutions and platforms, it, it made it more of a playing field that everyone can now have, not necessarily the same technology, but can have some technology where the focus should be not on the technology, but the focus should still be on your business, which is if I'm a trucker, it's my quality of service, providing you the best possible service and getting that product from A to B. Yeah, that, that's that's really so. When you talk about the enterprise carriers and the ones that had the telematics, et cetera, to begin with, and now it's kind of proliferated down through the ranks to the to the smaller, which is the majority of the trucking 
entities are smaller carriers, mm-hmm. not the majority of the trucks, but the majority of the entities are. Yep. The larger the truck load is, and I want to ask you if this is if you find this across other industries that you guys deal with as well. But the larger the truckload industry or truckload carrier it is, the more enterprise it is, the more insulated they are from really the trends and recognizing trends in the economy and social, et cetera, because the smaller guys are the ones that really feel it on the front line first, right? The smaller, the one truck, the yeah. four truck, the three trucks, and the small $10 million a year, $20 million a year, $5 million a year brokerages, those are the ones that get dumped into Greece when things get get tough first. So they recognize things months in advance before an enterprise carrier. Does that uh, does that translate to other industries that you guys work in? And is that kind of insulation going away now with this plurifer- with with the availability of the data and transparency? Yeah, I think it's more of an industry problem. If you look at transportation, for, fortunately, it's a cutthroat business, right? With very, yeah. very low margins. And so if you look, most of these companies don't have a lot of free cash flow. So if you look, when, when things get tight, like it is now, right? Rates are yep. like very low. There's too much capacity because there's not enough demand. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, we're seeing more business goods going out of business, right? And we've already seen, I think, the, the first three months of this year, more, even larger, 100-plus size carriers go out of business than previous years. So that's that's a problem because no one's sitting on mountains of money. Only the really, really big companies might have a lot of cash flow. So even when things go down, they have enough free cash flow to continue surviving. And obviously, if, if you're a small, your mom and pop, if you don't have work tomorrow, you know, you don't have money to, to pay for your fuel. So it, it's, yeah. it's going downhill very, very quickly. Um, yeah, yeah you, you see that in, in some industry as well, even on the manufacturing side, right? I mean, I work for PepsiCo, which is typically low margin business, consumer products, especially food and beverage. If you sell chips, there's not a lot of margin in that, right? But that also means the lower the margin is you're always looking at how can I use technology to increase my margin or increase yeah. my revenue creation but not at the same time hire my cost. So 3PL is a good example where you're seeing a lot of these brokers or freight forwarders that are still growing. Uh, I was just in Brazil a month ago and we see these these freight forwarders growing like 50 to 100% year over year. So what they're trying to do is how can I use technology to grow my revenue without necessarily having to hire more people? Those efficiencies now become kind of this powerful weapon for them to to create more um, cash flow that in turn, they can continue to grow, continue to expand, continue to invest in other things. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got a we've got a really good base of of logistics and 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 what you're into there, Project Forty Four, and how it impacts people and businesses. And I think people would understand watching this how it impacts their daily lives and how intricate this is. So let's 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 get into the meat of of sustainability a bit and talk about uh, uh, talk about those. And we can go either way. I really don't care. We can talk about scope three emissions first, or we can talk about sustainability in general. I guess scope three emissions first. It is first, what is scope three emissions or, mm-hmm. you're, you know, to any industry, really, it doesn't just apply to logistics, but it applies to every, there's scope one, which is your immediate, right? There's yep. scope two, which is kind of this intermediary scope two. It's kind of that use of your product type of thing. And then scope three is like all the supporting type of operations that have to happen. So if I'm a manufacturing scope three is 
yeah. the trucks that I use, right? Or the carriers that I use, right? Or right. my vendors and stuff like that. So how does logistics or intermediaries or what you're doing there, Project 44, impact one, two, and three in any order you want to go to? Because yeah. the importance to the environment and to the world uh, and to all society is, I don't think any one of them is primary, actually. <laughs> they're they're all equal at the top, sure. right? Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, our main focus, as I mentioned in the beginning, is is really on that inventory in motion. So it's mainly on the transportation side. So the biggest part is scope three. Although in many cases, if you have a manufacturer or retail with a private fleet for that manufacturer, that retailer, their private fleet is scope one, but to their yeah. customer, that's scope three. So there's two aspects yeah. of it, right? So what we do is, is from a sustainability perspective, we use the network, we use, and then also our, our network of partners to pull data in real actual data primary data, as it's called in sustainability, to really be able to calculate emissions. Um, we started doing that with ocean. We've got a roadmap to do that for other modes of transportation as well. We worked with the University of Tennessee to do a fleet sustainability index as well. But what we're starting to see, companies obviously have had an ESG program and they've had their strategy around it. What they're starting now to finally do is kind of become more tactical and saying, how are you attacking this to lower emissions to scope three? Scope one and two, they've been doing for many years, right? And even when I was at PepsiCo, we had manufacturing locations that had a zero carbon footprint even 15 years ago. We're, okay. we're nowhere near there within logistics. And we're just starting with companies that are currently investing in the tactical part of improving their emissions. But even there, I would say there's they're very few and far in between. Um, in Europe, they're doing a little bit more of that because they have mandates on reporting. They've already established carbon taxes, whereas in the U.S., we don't have any of that. We no, don't have mandatory reporting yet. We don't have any carbon tax defined. So what is really incentive for companies in the U.S. to do it? And you can say, well, we want to do it because, you know, we're such good people. But at, at the end, a corporation, especially if you're a large public corporation, you still have to somehow turn that into a profit, right? And not just a cost. Yeah. So yeah. I think we're in we're in that phase of where people are trying to understand what is the, the value and really the return on investment if we become more sustainable. And, and we can talk about a couple of industries that benefit more from that than others. Yeah, because there's, there's the impact of sustainability on, on your... Uh, or sustainability efforts on your supply chain and how to make it more sustainable. But the sustainability movement and everything around the world is going to impact supply chains as well, right? And where things move and what moves and what doesn't move, et cetera. Um, when you talk about scope three and you're talking about emissions, right? Most people immediately, and so do I, immediately think of, well, we need alternative fuels. Everything needs to be electrified or it needs to be solar powered or whatever it happens to be. That's not all of it, right? It's not all just the fuel, right? It is the movement and the logistical nature of it. And when you say moving inventory or inventory in motion, I understand completely what you're talking about. I worked on projects 15 years ago with that concerning floor covering moving across mm -hmm. the United States and actually across uh, the Pacific, et cetera, for a large uh, floor covering manufacturer in, in Toronto. Uh, so I understand what that is. But so explain that a little bit as to how that how that works from a perspective of it, it is emissions in this carbon footprint, but it's not what the 
most people are going to think like, well, you know, we need cleaner fuel or, or whatever it is, right? It, it is the motion and understanding what's going on, right? Yeah, it all, it all starts with understanding and measuring your emissions, right? That, that's where it all starts is understanding if I have a product, let's say that, that nice guitar behind you, right, that got delivered to you, uh, what is the total emission footprint? And some people even look at it there to say, if I buy that and that store or that DC shipped it from, the, from that location to me, what was the carbon footprint of that, of that right. transportation? But we should also look in a, in a larger way because that wood came from somewhere. That string probably came from a, from a, from a supplier. Uh, other parts of the electronics probably were bought somewhere else and then uh, put in the place that assembled it. So you want to look at it end to end. What's the carbon footprint of all those raw materials and, and semi-finished products that went into that and have the total vision? And that's what you're trying to look at. And then trying to look at opportunities of where can I minimize those emissions? So it could be looking at, hey, if I have on a truckload that's coming in with um, pallets of, of raw materials, I have five different carriers for that particular origin destination where I don't just get rates, but where I can see what they're doing. Well, maybe there's a carrier that's a lot more sustainable because they have uh, maybe a younger fleet of diesel trucks. Mm, I'm just talking mm -hmm. about, let's say, carbon emission uh, and uh, right. uh, regular combustion engine vehicles. And by having that visibility, I can make the right choice. I don't make a choice just on rate and quality of service, but also on sustainability. The reality yeah. is that if you look at electric vehicles, one, you have to go like, well, long haul class A trucks. Is that even um, possible? Uh, I think I would ref defer to... Uh, my, my buddy, Mac McLellan from Covenant, who, who does a lot of research around that, right? He and he's testing a lot of that. But the fact is, you know, I did myself. I said, Bart, you love sustainability. Put your money where your mouth is and buy an electric vehicle. So back in 20, early 2021, it was kind of late 2020, early 21, I ordered a Rivian SUV, right? Oh, nice. And I was going to have it end, end of 2021, and then I got the, the message saying, it's not going to be October, it's going to be December. Then it was going to be February. Well, in February of 2022, <laughs> I got a message saying, hey, by the way, it's going to be earliest 2024. And by the way, um, we're going to charge you 25% more because of supply chain oh, issues. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, wow. you got to remember, meantime, my other vehicle had gone out of leasing. So I hadn't had a car in about eight months. But you know what? I, I realized I don't need a car. I don't really drive anywhere. I bought my son who had turned 18 a car and he's driving me to the airport. Uh, and then when I use Uber where it is available, I'll, I'll use Uber Green. But the whole thing is, even if you want to go electric, which you can yeah. decide and discuss if that's really more sustainable, because it also depends where that electricity is coming from, how it's generating. It does. But again, does. you also have to look at the full end-to-end -end life cycle of the manufacturing of electric vehicles. And even yes. electric cars, if you look at the carbon footprint of making an electric car versus a regular car, that carbon footprint of making an electric car is far higher. Oh, and then for, you yeah. can talk about depletion of the planet with the materials that go into batteries. So it becomes a very political and the S, the social well. part of ESG too, with the supply chain of the cobalt and all that other kind of stuff, yeah. which is still not pretty. The and the bottom layer of that is a horror show, as we all know. And stuff. I mean, it's you're right, yeah, because it takes a number. If you buy an electric vehicle, 
uh, it takes a number of years for that to actually get to carbon neutral because of the manufacturing process. And then you've got to consider, like you said, is that green electricity that's coming, right? Because right. depending on where that electricity is coming, that electric vehicle may only be 40% more green on a daily basis than a gas-powered vehicle, right? You're depending correct. And then, and then there's also the cost aspect, right? There's, are yeah. people willing to pay twice as much for it? I mean, we have within Project 44 a team member community. We call it Planet 44, which talks about sustainability and where we drive initiatives in-house. And so I'm the executive sponsor. I bought the whole team t-shirts and we said well we're sustainable so we have to buy sustainable t-shirts you can go on etsy right michael and order 12 dollars printed t-shirts back and forth printed all day long have them delivered long. within three days yes, well you can. those sustainable t-shirts right which were recycled they were 30 dollars a piece and it took three weeks to get them so the reality is right you can have Not all so the best easy, intentions man. of the world we're not quite there yet that's no, just the reality of it but what you can do while you're getting there is at least start measuring. So you understand what is my current baseline? What is my footprint? And maybe there, there are, there is low hanging fruit to say, hey, I've been hiring this guy that has, you know, X amount of emissions versus this company has a much younger fleet, which has much lower emission. It's the same cost. It's the same vehicles. I mean, Walmart invests in super clean diesel vehicles. They don't go and look necessarily at electric vehicles. They say, even within more modern engines, diesel engines, you can drastically re uh, diminish emissions, not just CO2, but also uh, NOx as well and other uh, gases that come out of it, right? So yeah. it's, it's not just completely uh, letting go of combustion engines. There's a lot of different things that can be done. Yeah, there's a lot there. There are and hydrogen's not 100 percent clean yet, and they haven't figured that out completely. But it's a, it's another possibility down there. There's no clear winner yet as to which way, which way we we need to go. That's for sure. But like you said, there are if you if you're just sitting there waiting and you're on the sustainable path, it's it's like Walt Whitman said. Even if you're on the right track, you're going to get run over if you're not moving, right? That's right. <laughs> And, and so if you're, if you're sitting there and you're on the sustainable path, but you're not making at least these baby steps and trying and failing and getting better or doing good and then doing a little bit better and a little bit better, you're not getting anywhere because there's many little things that you can, you can possibly do to bring that, to bring that forward. You're hundred percent right. I agree with you. I agree with and you And I lot. think going back a little bit to the beginning of our discussion where we talked about collaboration and data, right? I think the other part is you know, TMSs have always been great in productivity, but we've been so, I call it navel staring. It's like we've been so concentrated and just looking at ourselves as organizations, single enterprises and optimizing the heck out of ourselves that sometimes we sub-optimize the industry. So yeah. there again, by providing data on a network basis, allows companies to much better collaborate and even collaborate across their networks of carriers or networks of fleets. Right? Mm -hmm. Whether you do that within your own division, we did that with PepsiCo. We created internal visibility so we could have Frito-Lay work together with Quaker. Our private fleet at Frito-Lay worked together and, and, and used that private fleet better with other divisions. But what if we could collaborate around the data that do that with multiple companies, um, sometimes even competitors, right? And we've seen that in Europe where EU Commission has funded certain initiatives to do that. We can take empty miles out. We can increase load percentages, which are still issues. That itself will help with both capacity, 
will help the truckers, but it also will help with sustainability. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, it is, there has to be a shift in the mindset, I think, uh, of, of, of companies, like you said, and thinking outside of their, of, of their four walls of, of their scope of business, their ideation, um, to understand that some of the data and some of the things that they considered to be uh, competitive in nature and, and really IP that they needed to hold on to um, is really non-competitive and helps yeah. everybody, right? And some of that that may be still semi-competitive, it actually helps to understand where everybody is going because as we move towards sustainability, right, which we are, the haves, I'm arguing this like crazy, the haves and have-nots of the world, whether you be a private citizen or a company or a, a country or a region, are going to change. And sometimes they're changing for the good, your good, and sometimes they're changing for your bad, and sometimes it's unintentional. The EPA regulations that came out in December and the incentives, right, for electric mm-hmm. vehicles, et cetera, is causing issues in Europe because theirs isn't as good and therefore Volvo and Volkswagen and BMW are looking to do more investing in the United States than in Europe because the incentives are bigger here and the market possibilities are better here. And that doesn't sit all that great with the EU, right? So you have all these things there. So expanding your mind a little bit, not through drugs like we used to in the 60s, but through data is incredibly important, right? Yeah, it is. It's absolutely right. And I think Again, that's that's the way we approach it as well within Project 44. Let the data show the insights. The insights drives the value. That's how you convince people, by creating value. It's not going to be driven by any type of technical solution. It's really going to be how do you drive value. And, and I'll give you one example, right, which I thought, and I think it's still one from a logistics point of view, one of the most forward-looking companies in the world when it comes to Logistics Sustainability, AB InBev, right? And, and I'm proud yeah. because they're obviously, the, the, or a lot of the origins are in, in, in Belgium uh, of the brewery. But for example, they'll look at things from a different mindset to say, hey, you know, they had a couple of years where they had a huge increase in the sales of non-alcoholic beer. Now, I'm Belgian, so non-alcoholic beer is a little bit weird to me, but... It's a waste um, of time. I don't understand it. I, don't I know understand. there's a lot of people drinking it. Heineken just came out with their 0.0, and it, it, it sells like hotcakes. But do you know how they make non-alcoholic beer, Michael? And I didn't know this either. I, I have no idea. I don't know. But what they do is they make regular beer, and then they extract the alcohol. So now you have a byproduct, which is this alcohol thing, that you have to pay a company to come pick it up, and you pay them to somehow dispose of it. But this one guy said, what if, opened his mindset, thought differently. What if we find a, a company that can turn it into a biofuel? And that's exactly what they did. So they turned something that became a cost and was just a byproduct into a fuel, that fuel part of their fleet. And now all of a sudden, they lowered the cost of getting rid of it. And at the same time, that free fuel. So it became profitable. So that's kind of the mindset companies need to change to say. Hey, I thought you were going to say they're they, I thought you were going to say they're going to create. They created craft beer and just put that into another beer and raise the ABV. <laughs> <laughs> that was that would have been the other. You could have made vodka <laughs> with it, maybe. I don't know. But that would have been so, nice. The thing is, if you open your mind to other possibilities, you know, great things come out of it. And yeah. and there are many examples of where being sustainable can drive revenue, especially with retailers. Retailers are at the forefront because they're so direct to the consumers and they know consumers 
don't just want sustainable solution. They want sustainable products, sustainable packaging, sustainable delivery. And if you can impact that customer experience and you impact net promoter scores, customer satisfaction, you're going to see your revenue go up. There's sure. a clear correlation. Yeah, there, there is. And there's plenty of studies that will show that given two products, a, a consumer will buy faster and for more money, one that can prove that it's sustainable. If you can convince the 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 person that it is sustainable and good for the planet, they will actually do that. You so you I mean, how? But how do you change that infrastructure, right? Because there's there's a lot of infrastructure that has been built up based on extract, use, and waste. No yeah. circularity to it. That's kind of that's a lot of the difficulties that are there. Can data such as what you guys are doing there be used to help? curve that linear model into something more sustainable when you start talking about sustainability from a natural resource and a reuse type of, of thing? Because even Renault, which you know who Renault is, they're just south of you guys. No. <laughs> well, not of Chicago no. or, or DFW, but you know what I'm saying. No. South of Belgium. They actually save a lot of carbon footprint and a lot of money by taking their old parts, et cetera, and they have their re-engineering, remanufacturing plant yeah. where they're remanufacturing the cars out of their old cars and parts. And it's it's yeah. great for the environment and it's lower cost. Yeah. Yeah. More and more companies are doing that, whether it's an automotive, Apple does it, right? You can bring your, your old devices back to Apple. Most of the time, they still give you money for it. And they have plans to say, hey, by 2050, we want to have most of our raw materials come from recycled products. We see it more and more with clothing where it's either being sold as secondhand or it's it's going and they're using the textile and make something else out of it. Plastic, they make shoes now out of plastic, all of those. We, I would say the, the, the part where we probably play more of a role is the data to help them understand yeah. when they create that circularity, what the transportation well, That's, a, that's the question. Is. That's the question. The data is really, really important to understanding that, right? Yes. And in all honesty, they need a lot more data than just what we provide, right? So we're just an element of, of all of that data. But I think what we're seeing is that more and more companies are going to that also because they know that at some point you are going to get depleted with some some materials, right? Because we always talk about sustainability, which means is what's the carbon footprint we're creating while using these things. Yeah. What we often don't discuss is how much are we depleting the planet, right? And at some point, there are certain things yeah, yeah, we're the just concern, running out of them. Yeah, the concern of biodiversity, whether it be uh, you know uh, mammal or not, uh, is is a concern, right? Well, yeah. you've got you've got some people. So check out uh, natural fiber welding and check out the Unless Collective because. Uh, natural fiber welding is actually a chemistry company that makes leather among other things out of plants. Yeah. Completely out of plants. Right. And then unless collective is a former CEO of Adidas that actually makes shoes out of plants. It's really cool stuff. So you're right. I mean, changing what you're using as far as the raw materials is, is happening, but that's also data and why you need, to understand what is going on because that changes things. What solar, solar, so 24, what is it? $24.4 billion. I think the administration is going to dump into solar wind farms off of the East coast or whatever. Uh, uh, right. So, yeah. and now wind uh, energy is um, cheaper than coal. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. So let's take the 95.5 million short tons of coal that we export. And now we don't do that anymore. What does that do to supply chains? <laughs> yeah. Right? 
You're absolutely right, right? And then obviously it, it impacts also from a transportation perspective, right? And that's the capacity what I'm saying. I mean, now suddenly there's no ship. Now that trains are not full, that base commodity on those trains isn't there anymore, no. right? We, we don't have to move wind, right? Wind's already there, but we move already coal. There. And for example, we, we are capturing carbon dioxide out of the air and maybe where before we used pipelines where we move in um, fuel through, we might not use that fuel anymore. And we use those same pipelines to capture the carbon dioxide and then move that through it, through plants that, that help that and, and then make other products out of it. So we're right. seeing changes and, and we see big ports are big players in that. In Europe, Port of Rotterdam, very advanced when it comes to, uh, to those things. Same as Port of Antwerp. And although Port of Rotterdam, Port of Antwerp, direct competitors when it comes to logistic services, they collaborate around sustainability and they're ones of those companies that they have those pipelines from the fuel. They go from Rotterdam to Antwerp, but they'll be sharing that pipeline when it comes to capturing carbon dioxide and sending that back up to a plant that then transforms that into other products. So I think there's great things that when companies collaborate with a common greater goal, they can come up with some great stuff. And obviously it's important that the um, that the uh, government plays a role into that. And EU Commission in that particular product gave a grant, I think it's somewhere like $500 million to help in, in, in creating that and, and making that into a reality. Because why, for example, Scandinavia is so much ahead of the US when it comes to um, sustainability? It's not just because they put down and they've already um, defined carbon taxes, but because it's they're providing tax incentives to companies, they're putting in place an infrastructure to make it a reality. So it has to be, again, a collaboration between industry and government, between countries, sometimes between competitors. Again, collaboration, even in sustainability, is a key, key aspect of it. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up the, the term collaboration, and I've been sitting here the whole time staring at your axes on the wall behind you. Are those are those uh, behind glass, or do you play those, or are those no, special? No, they're not behind glass. I don't play anymore, um, and I'll tell you quickly the history. So I started playing classical guitar when I was eight. Uh, when I went to uh, college, I picked up electric guitars because I went from playing notes to really playing chords. And then I, at the same time, I really got into blues music and, and I, I kind of realized how crap I was at guitar playing. So I spent <laughs> most of my money instead of lessons going to concerts. And then, you know, life happens, wife, kids, all of that. It Although does. it's not an excuse, but other priorities. But I still love music, still go to concerts. Um, obviously, that's an Eric Clapton blackie behind me. I've yeah. seen Eric Clapton over 55 times. Most of it. So that is the Eric Clapton um, signature series or one of his guitars that signed or what? What is it? No, no, no. I couldn't afford that. Dear yeah, me. Okay. No, it's just it's, it's, uh, it's Blackie signature. signature series, but he's never yeah. played it. You're talking a difference from a few thousand dollars to hundreds of thousands oh, of yeah, dollars. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> I've got, I, I, I got my Telecaster here, American Tele, and and no, Keith Richards didn't play it or anything like that. I've played it, and therefore yeah. it's been, it, it devalues it. Right. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> just you and Springsteen, right? Yeah. yeah um, I got a, a Gibson Les Paul. I got a Gretsch. I got another Gretsch there that you can't see out of scope. And then I've got a Joe Satriani Ibanez Surfing with the Alien 20th Anniversary Edition. Oh, which nice. Is, uh, which is kind of one of my favorites as well. But yeah, I just love music. I love guitar music. So besides logistics and technology, that's my passion. 
food yeah. and wine is a passion and the music those besides my wife and kids of course and my yeah. dogs my my, my I, mine's music as well as you can tell my yeah. i got my my vox and my 67 bandmaster fender underneath it and my martin and, and my ibanez over there and my bass and all that kind of, kind of stuff i was hoping you still played because you know i do the the parody trucking tunes i don't know if you yeah. you've known that I've but, seen uh, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed how many people in logistics together. play the guitar. It's incredible how many people in logistics play guitar. Yeah, well, I mean, you go to the bar and you start drowning your sorrows from the day in beer or in, in whiskey, and pretty soon you got to pick up a harmonica or something, and it just goes from there, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. When you bring the band together, I'll do the cowbell. Uh, well, we're going to be at TIA in a few weeks, right? I will be there. I'll be there, and I know my man Lance yeah. Healy, who is a hell of a blues uh, harmonica yeah. player and drummer. He's going to be there, so I, I bet we could. I bet we could scare up a, a band. Yeah, I saw Lance at Manifest, and he always carries his harmonica, and he was uh, always there, bro. Tunes. He's pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah, it's always there. It's always there. So what's good, what's new at uh, P- at Project Forty Four before we uh, before we close this out? It's been tremendous, but what what's new? What should we be looking for, Bart? Yeah, so our focus is continuing to, um, besides driving the company more global, right? We've been uh, the last year and a half in Latin America and in Asia Pacific, where we're seeing um, good traction. We're continuously looking at uh, getting our network to be broader and deeper. So we introduced at TPM in February, we introduced terminal visibility, where we go beyond just that end-to-end, much more granular in the terminal. Uh, We've added things like yard visibility, we're continuously looking at really um, providing not just more granularity, but better visibility to customers. And in the end, it's all to create more value. And, and as we now have over 1,300 customers, a lot of the request uh, for our development also comes from the customer base, right? And sustainability is actually one of those that is starting to come more, more and more. I will say not everyone necessarily has the budget to start spending money on sustainability, Mm-hmm. But there's definitely the willingness and the interest. So that's one of the other parts that we continue to develop on. Again, we're, we're having customers using our ocean visibility digital twin, and we're continuing to expand that to other modes as well. Yeah, uh, that, that's really good stuff. I have one final question for you on the, on the, on the uh, sustainability portion of it. Are you seeing people becoming more and more, it becoming more and more important for people to have that information in order to do business? Because I asked that of our mutual friend, Matt McClellan. Mm-hmm. He said, absolutely. Yeah. Are you seeing the same thing? I agree. I mean, um, but it, it's much more from a strategic perspective, right? So when our, any customers come to us and they want to, and they deal with any supplier, whether yeah. it's a whether it's a, a raw material supplier, it's a tech vendor, whatever. First thing they go is like, show me your ESG program. You get this whole questionnaire. So you better get your stuff together and understand uh, how you're doing it. Obviously, with us, it's gone even further because last year, Generation IM, Al Gore's company, invested in us. So we actually have to submit our own scope one, two, and three emissions. We have to mm. report on those and we have to show them how we're improving that. So now we're on the hook ourselves, although we're not a manufacturer, right? But we we create emissions because our people use transportation, they fly to meetings, we have, you know, cloud providers that that use, we have buildings, offices that use electricity. So we have to do that as well. So yeah, you better have a good program and not just sustainability, which is part of the E, right? Sometimes people think it's the S of ESG, it isn't, right? It's E, environmental, sustainability falls under that, but then you have social and you have governance. 
it's incredibly important. If you want to do business with other companies, you better make sure that you don't just have that for sure, but you have a really good strategy around yeah. how you're going to attack those three critical elements, not just to do business, but also to hire people, right? And we're oh, a yeah. Attracting, yeah, attracting talent and retaining that talent is huge. I've read a, there was a report, I forget where it was. It was in Europe though. It may have been, uh, it might've been from the UK or whatever, but I think it was like 67% of uh, uh, people had declined a job that otherwise would have been acceptable to, to, to uh, um, take just yep. because the ESG values did not match theirs. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And, and, you know, we see it, it comes up a lot of times when we have younger people um, kind of coming to us for jobs and is like, what does your company do for sustainability? Right. It, it's incredibly important. And then it's the social uh, aspect of it as, as well. People want to feel that they belong. That's why we have these team member communities. We have quite a few within, within the organization. Because again, in tech, it's all about people, right? That's really yeah, the, yeah. The, the asset that you have is, is the people and the people make it happen. It's a people business. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly important. So I fully agree with Matt. Uh, and there's a lot of other aspects. Now, have companies figured it all out? No. And I mm -hmm. think we'll continue that at TIA, at our panel, where we'll yeah, have some yeah, other folks join us right in that discussion. And, yeah. and part of it is education, but part of it is, again, in a room of people, we all have a responsibility. It isn't just us being on stage telling us what's going on. That whole room, the whole industry, there, there's only one way we're going to get out of this is when we all work together uh, and make things better. It's our all, all of our joint responsibility. Yeah, yeah. The the gone are the days when an employee is going to come in and work their butt off for a company that doesn't have something other than a profit as a goal. It's just what it is. Got to have those yeah. values. Got to have some words. Yeah. Bart, awesome stuff. Thank you so much, my friend. And I will see you in just a few weeks. He's Bart the Monk walking the walk, not just talking the talk, right? As he just said, they're on the hook now too. They got to prove their, their greenness and their ESG strategy as well. I'm Mike Vincent, Sustainiacs. Until next time, peace and love.